Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Australian and New Zealand Studies. I'm your host today, Dr. Matthew Thompson. I will be talking to Imre Salazinski, author of The Hilton Bombing, Evan Pedrick and the Ananda Marga. Imre was born in Budapest in 1955. He and his family came to Australia as refugees after the 1956 Hungarian uprising. Imre was educated at the University of Melbourne and at Oxford. Uh, He returned to Australia and became an academic at the University of Newcastle, which is where I met him some 20 or a bit more years ago when he was my lecturer in Romanticism. He kept his hand in journalism through those years, writing weekly column appearing in daily papers across Australia from about 1994 to 2012. He was also serving on the Australia Council from 2006 to 2009. He then left academia, spent seven years reporting on New South Wales politics, and then in 2013 became senior advisor to former New South Wales Premier Mike Baird through to Baird's retirement in 2017. Imre was also editor of the Oxford Book of Australian Essays. As we'll hear, Um, The Hilton bombing is the tale of Evan Pedrick, a man who confessed and served time for planting a bomb outside the Hilton Hotel in 1978 that killed three people in an attempt to assassinate the visiting Prime Minister of India. Evan was a member of Ananda Marga, a religious movement at the time uh, based in Bihar, India, but which had adherents in Australia and across the world. And I'll hand it over to Imre. Let's let's have a chat then. So, hello, Imre. Hi, Matt. Good to be talking to you. Likewise. And I should mention, just for disclosure terms, that Imre was my lecturer about 20 years ago <laughs> in in Romanticism and, and popular essay writing. Yeah. So, the Hilton bombing, um, your biography basically of, of Evan Pedrick. Yep. Um, could you just tell us how – like, what got you into this? Yeah, I'd be happy to, Matt. And along with the book, you're, you're one of the productions I'm proudest of as well, I should, I should mention. Um, Thank you. <laughs> look, um, your summary biography of me kind of captures the odd way uh, the book has emerged from the different parts of my life that you mentioned, the academia and the journalism. I was a young cadet reporter at the Age newspaper in Melbourne um, in February of 1978 when a massive bomb exploded outside the Hilton Hotel um, in Sydney, uh, not in the middle of the night, but in the very, very early hours of the night um, between midnight and 1am. And as the duty cadet at the time, uh, I had some very small uh, role in the newspaper's coverage of this 
at that time, uh, first and still today, most serious terrorist atrocity that had ever occurred in Australia. Um, as a result of that, um, I kind of uh, couldn't shake this uh, this event out of my mind. It turned out to be the most dramatic news story I had anything to do with because my first sort of duty in journalism was very brief and I commenced postgraduate study and an, and an academic career. When I got back to Australia after studying in Britain and eventually commenced an academic career up in Newcastle where um, I met and taught you and your friends, um, the Hilton bombing kind of came back to to collect me again because at that stage the matter had not been solved uh, there were uh, people who had been the focus of intense police and media attention in the uh, decade that had then elapsed since the bombing i'm talking about 1988 now 88 89 and uh, some of my students not you by memory, but other students, um, some of my brighter students, uh, were very interested in what had happened, what the police had made of it, and indeed the idea that the police and the security forces in Australia were involved in a conspiracy, that they had prosecuted the bombing, and now they were trying to frame an innocent, progressive group for the Atrocity, and that group was um, a Indian-based religious cult called Ananda Marga, which uh, was formed uh, in India in the uh, 1960s and grew to some prominence in the 70s under a guru called Pia Sarkar. Now, let me just stress, Matthew, my my students weren't adherents of Ananda Marga. However, Ananda Marga, as a cause, had been taken up by the campus left since the bombing, and indeed uh, some prominent members of the cult in Australia had moved across to the what I would call radical or far left. So I became interested in the claim, that incredible claim when you think about it, that Australian police and security agencies had placed bomb outside a hotel in Sydney a decade earlier where the Australian Prime Minister, the Australian Foreign Minister, various other Australian officials and a dozen heads of government from the Asia-Pacific region were gathered in advance of a regional conference. I became interested in that claim and then certain dramatic events happened in uh, in the second half of 1989, which brought it all back to the to the front of my consciousness. Now that's more than uh, 30 years ago, um, and uh, uh, it took a long time for all of this uh, to come together into this book. Uh, but that's uh, that's something I can give you more detail on if you're interested. Okay, and for a, a sort of timeline for this, then so the bomb is 78. Yep. Um, and then you're, when did you start to get interested in, is this when you came back through the 80s, is that, is that right? Yes, yeah, so um, I got 
interested again, as I was just uh, saying in the late 80s when I was teaching at Newcastle. But then, um, just as I was talking to my students about this this theory of a conspiracy, um, a a man came forward in in Brisbane and uh, confessed to the Hilton bombing. Uh, That uh, confession followed by about a day or less than a day, the arrest in Sydney of a former member of Anandamaga called Tim Anderson on the Hilton bombing in which three innocent men had died a decade earlier to uh, council garbage collectors who uh, were killed when the bin containing the bomb was emptied by them into their truck and a young policeman who'd been standing on the front steps or near the front escalator of the hotel, uh, among other policemen guarding the the foreign heads of government that I just mentioned a moment ago. Um, This man, uh, Tim Anderson, uh, was arrested um, in the uh, middle part of 1989 uh, on the evidence of a notorious jailbird called uh, Ray Denning. The morning after that arrest which was uh, heavily um, uh, publicised, of course, another man named Devin Pedrick came forward in Perth, uh, in Brisbane, I should say. He was originally from Perth, confessed to his part in the bombing and uh, further incriminated Tim Anderson. Um, At a trial the following year in 1990, uh, Pedrick was convicted of murder. Uh, in a trial uh, that then concluded uh, in early 1991, Anderson was also convicted of the bombing, uh, largely on Pedrick's evidence. Um, He was then acquitted, that's Anderson, acquitted on appeal the following year. Pedrick went to jail uh, for about a decade and upon release returned to his native Perth where he eventually became an Anglican minister. I, in all of this time, had not been able to put this matter out of my mind, and I uh, I never got around to writing anything about it. I was busy. I was trying to uh, drum some sense into the heads of you and your young fellow students at Newcastle on the topics you mentioned, including romanticism. Uh, I had young children uh, running around me, but uh, although I couldn't really get to it, I also couldn't get away from it. Uh, Now, when Google came along, the internet came along, I discovered this fact of Pedrick's now being a free man and also of his now being a priest. And I thought, my God, this there's got to be a story here. And by this time, uh, and I'm talking the uh, the first decade of the current century, I'd left academic life and returned to journalism. Uh, now, I got over to Perth in the later part of the uh, noughties um, on an unrelated project and uh, dropped Pedrick a note saying, uh, could I buy you lunch? He accepted. Um, in, uh, in 2010, uh, I was over there and uh, met up with him, and we eventually established a relationship of friendship, but also of trust, mutual understanding. And as a result of that, eventually, I was able to clear the time in my own life, and 
took a number of years for me to properly research and, 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 and write uh, this authorised biography of the man who bombed the Hilton, confessed to the Hilton, did his time for the Hilton, and now is perfectly prepared to continue to take full responsibility for his role in the Hilton. And this is the first time that his story has been told. And I should just stress, Matt, I, I use the term authorised biography, and uh, that's there to indicate that he's been involved in every stage of this process. And uh, to my mind, uh, that's a strength of the book, not a weakness of the book, because I believe that he is a honourable and a truthful person who for a period of three years became a completely brainwashed tool of a religious cult. And during that period, while he had, uh, in effect, outsourced his decision-making, his judgment, and indeed his identity to a cult, uh, as a result of processes that are well understood by those who study these things, as a result of all that, he did an absolutely stupid, terrible, and murderous thing uh, for which, uh, ever since, he's uh, experienced the most uh, deep remorse Okay. I I remember uh, the heydays of Hare Krishnas in Sydney, um, but I I was more aware of the Ananda Marga as um, to do with, I guess, Tim Anderson's legal battles and things rather than seeing them on the streets as a, as a religious group. Yeah. Um, so, so can you just tell us a bit about the Ananda Marga? I mean, it's fascinating what's in your book about, you know, their aim being – a world government under people remarkably like them, a benevolent dictatorship, they called it explicitly yeah. and so on. But what, what, when did they start and how big did they get and what were their main sort of, you know, lifestyles or activities? Yeah, so uh, they envisioned a world government under the direction of not just people like them, Matt, but in fact by them. Um, <laughs> and you're, you're a bit too young to have experienced uh, the presence of an Andamaga particularly on Australian campuses, uh, they were never a large group. They were never a particularly prominent group. Um, you would see their their posters um, stuck up around, uh, around campuses in Melbourne and Sydney. I honestly, Matt, have no memory of them in the 1970s, although I have friends who say, oh, yeah, I can remember an Antimarga. They were around. So they were never a large group in, uh, in Australia. They probably at their peak in Australia were under a 1,000. Um, around the world, they were one of the many um, Hindu-based religious sects that were competing for the uh, custom of uh, Western-based spiritual seekers in the 1960s and 1970s when, among other things, uh, Eastern spirituality was of enormous interest to young people and uh, those uh, broadly involved in what we would call the counterculture. So Anandamaga was one of many groups that taught um, meditation and taught other spiritual disciplines um, that uh, involved uh, a heightened uh, awareness of uh, the different uh, energy centres in, in the body. Um, they, um, they were uh, also uh, teaching um, the, uh, the spiritual work of their guru, a man called P.R. Sarkar. And uh, 
Saka was uh, a um, rail clerk. Hang on, I've just got to... <coughs> Sorry about you'll have to edit that out. Um, so Saka was uh, a male clerk who began gathering followers around himself in the, in the late 1950s. And um, as well as teaching uh, the, his version of Hinduism, he had, as you've just stressed, an elaborate theory of social revolution, which was called Prout. Um, right. Um, and uh, according to Prout, uh, society would go through uh, various cycles, it resembled Marxism to, to some extent, various cycles in which different classes and groups of people would come into conflict with each other, and then a new group would emerge from that, that would be the, the, the powerful group, and the final powerful group would be the Anandamaga, his own followers. And under Anandamaga, and they, they believed this would happen in their own time, under Anandamaga, there would be a new world government, uh, a new world army, a new world governing body. And um, although to the student left in the 1960s and 70s, elements of this seemed uh, similar enough uh, to, uh, to a kind of Marxist vision to allow different networks of alliance to emerge. In fact, if you look at Prout uh, with, with any um, uh, focus at all, it's, it's quite a you know, scary, sinister, and uh, fundamentally a, a more of a kind of fascist dictatorship version of human life than, than a socialist one. None of this, of course, was going anywhere. Um, none, of us had, none of it had any force or likelihood of success. But then something happened um, in the early 70s which changed the course of Anandamaga very, very dramatically. Sarkar was arrested for murder in India after a large number of dead bodies were found buried at his compound. Uh, the bodies of a number of former Anandamaga monks who had, uh, had broken with Sarkar. Now, um, Sarkar spent most of the 70s in jail on those charges. And while he was in jail, something happened to Anandamaga, which has been shown to be not un uncommon in the study of um, new religious movements and cults, which is that um, a harmless group, uh, a, a basically marginal and uh, unexceptional kind of group suddenly turns quite dangerous, suddenly turns turns quite violent. Uh, that's what happened to Ananda Margaret in the 70s. They began an international campaign of violence directed against uh, official Indian targets that was designed to force the Indian government to release their guru, P.R. Sarkar. Now, um, in uh, February of 1978, I mentioned that there were a dozen Asia-Pacific lead leaders billeted at the um, Hilton Hotel in Sydney. One of them was the Prime Minister of India, Maraji Desai. And as this book shows, uh, Ananda Marga found it irresistible to uh, attempt the assassination of Desai while he was in that hotel. And uh, Evan was the member of Ananda Marga who undertook uh, this uh, this uh, appalling, uh, ill-judged and, in the end, uh, murderous activity. Uh, he built and planted a, a bomb in two stages 
in a rubbish bin outside the hotel on the 12th and uh, the 11th, 12th and 13th of uh, February, the second weekend of February 1978. He attempted to detonate the bomb using a remote control device when he thought he saw Desai arriving at the hotel on the afternoon of Sunday, the 12th of February, uh, when it failed to detonate uh, with an enormous sense of relief. He believed that his guru, P.R. Sarkar, had intervened from his jail cell in India to prevent this horrendous loss of life, and he left Sydney and headed back to Brisbane, where at that time he was a full-time official for Anandamaga. And seven or eight hours later, uh, as I was saying before, the bomb exploded as it was emptied into the garbage uh, collection truck. Okay. And um, now the Prime Minister Desai, has it been established if that was him arriving? Would it? Would he have assassinated him? Was it? Um... Yes. So just before I address that, um, I, I, I guess I didn't quite finish filling in uh, quite sufficient detail about Ananda Marga in the in, the, in, in Australia in the 1970s. They, they were a small group, Matt, but they were a, an effective and tight group in many ways. Uh, they operated uh, by offering uh, meditation lessons uh, to anyone who was interested. Uh, but from those meditation lessons, if you wanted to go further, as Evan, who was a young, naive, rather lost spiritual seeker at the time, um, disaffected with the uh, Protestant uh, religious traditions that his parents brought him brought him up in. If you wanted to go further, then you were initiated. You undertook a series of steps. You basically got sucked deeper and deeper into this thing. And in the case of Evan, uh, who very very quickly became very very brainwashed by Ananda Marga, in the case of Evan, if you wanted to proceed to a, a official role with the group. Then you went to a, a 12-week training program. That training program for Evan uh, occurred in the winter of uh, 1977 here in Sydney. Um, and uh, in that time, you were completely cut off from the outside world. Uh, every moment of your day was strictly controlled. You were thoroughly inculcated into the worldview of Ananda Marga. Um, you were... Uh, you were initiated into this uh, picture that they were soon going to be uh, the new uh, you know ruling force in the world and of course you were also initiated into uh, a version of hindu spiritual belief that was a uh, quite a sophisticated valid and uh, extremely sort of traditional and long standing way of understanding um the uh, the relation of the uh, um individual to a much larger uh, organism uh, or sublime being. Uh, and that touching, coming into contact with that sublime being was the goal, the ultimate goal of all of your meditation and all of your reflection. So that's what Ananda Marga was doing in Australia. To answer the question that you've just raised, um, Evan um, stood opposite the Hilton Hotel on the afternoon of Sunday, the 12th of February, 1978. He had a remote control device in a bag that he was carrying. He'd put um, uh, about 30 sticks of gelignite in this bin. Police hadn't even bothered to check the bins. This is 1978. 
terrorism had never been experienced in Australia. And as official cars pulled up outside the Hilton, Evan waited to see who would get out and whether it would be Maraji Desai, um, whom he had learned to recognise by studying uh, newspapers and, and other sources, and who was a very recognisable figure, a small, compact, dark-skinned man in the traditional sort of Nero jacket and the, the, the kind of uh, white uh, costumes that um, the Indian leadership of that period wore, and a small, very neatly folded uh, cap on his head, which almost looked like a little tiny upturned boat. Um, now, um, Evan thought he saw Desai arriving and, and tried, as I say, unsuccessfully to detonate his bomb. Now, when all of this got processed through the courts uh, a decade or more later, it emerged that it can't have been say that he saw arriving, because say in order um, to uh, avoid uh, a potential demonstration at the front of the hotel by Nandamarga, had in fact been taken up the vehicular entrance at the rear of the hotel. He hadn't arrived at the, uh, at the hotel uh, that afternoon. However, it later emerged that uh, about an hour following his arrival, he had left the hotel by the front entrance to be driven to a reception um, at uh, um, the uh, Prime Minister's uh, official residence in Sydney. Now, um, eventually, uh, the prosecutors, not of Evan, but of the other man that was charged, Tim Anderson, settled on this so-called Desai departure theory as the explanation uh, for um, the impossibility of the original account that was extracted from Evan um, in uh, in the trial and the account that he'd originally given police. Uh, it was as the result of, of that deeply flawed process, largely the result of that, um, that um, Anderson's appeal was successful the following year. In terms of what Evan remembered or didn't remember, one has to, we have to remember, Matt, that as these events were happening, he was in a state of anxiety, frenzy, and hysteria. And um, scientists, cognitive scientists who, who look at memory have, uh, have often pointed out or have pointed out that when you're in that kind of a state, often your memories become disturbed, dissociated, dislodged, and in various ways disrupted. That is then, of course, only exacerbated by the effect of time on memory, which is, again, inevitably to dislocate and disrupt. So um, of that particular, those moments, those moments when he tried to, as he thought, kill Maraji to say, Evan's memories by a decade after these events were uh, something of a mess. Uh, however, apart from those moments, his memories were rather uh, detailed, uh, vivid, and as it turns out, reliable, because all kinds of other, other uh, consolidating details 
that he was able to give to the uh, to the police and uh, to the courts, not only about that weekend, but the two weeks leading up to it, uh, were were as I say, uh, easily confirmed. Right, and and you mentioned the campaign of violence um, from Ananda Marga, so. Also, what attacks in Canberra on the military attaché? Is that correct? And yeah, um, there were various uh, there were various attacks uh, around the world, mostly in India, uh, but also in Europe uh, and in uh, New Zealand, um, where uh, a, a policeman was uh, briefly kidnapped and held hostage. And here in Australia, um, in the second half of nineteen seventy seven. Uh, there are a number of attacks uh, by Nandamaga, including an attack on the Sydney offices of Air India, in which um, animal blood was uh, sprayed uh, over uh, terrified employees. And more seriously, as you say, the uh, Indian military attaché in Canberra, uh, Colonel Iqbal Singh, was assaulted and kidnapped in the second half of 1977. Uh, and uh, a member of Ananda Marga was eventually convicted in connection with that and sent to jail. Okay. And um, then Evan confesses, goes to jail, and then the the stories of the conspiracy or alleged conspiracy seem to keep coming. And yeah. I, um, I remember the ABC documentary you write about. So the the national broadcaster in Australia, what is it, 1995, plays a documentary was it called conspiracy about it, it uh, alleging or strongly suggesting that Australia's intelligence or security services planted the bomb so that they could find it and justify more funding and, and power and things? Yes, it was. It was, in fact, unironically called a conspiracy, uh, Matt. Yeah, and, and Evan ends up being in jail, having confessed to planting the explosive device that killed three people and injured others saying, I did this <laughs> for these reasons. And he's got the national broadcaster sort of, you know, nudging him aside out of the way going, no, look at all this. Exactly. And he was the only person in the New South Wales um, criminal justice system who uh, had to keep insisting he was guilty uh, rather than innocent. So, um, yes, that that um, ridiculous documentary and in some ways disgraceful documentary uh, was broadcast in 1995. And Matt, the conspiracy theories that had been around in the 1980s, um, they, uh, of course, took a bit of a hit when someone came forward and confessed in the shape of Evan. But the fact that um, uh, his accused co-conspirator, his alleged co-conspirator, uh, was uh, cleared on appeal, um, then allowed those um, conspiracy theories out of the cupboard again. What they relied on after that, however, was the effacement of Evan uh, or the disappearance of Evan or the relegation of Evan to somehow an inconvenient footnote in all of this. So in that, in that documentary, which was broadcast on the ABC in 1995 and in which all kinds of conspiracy theories are floated, Evan gets, um, I think, less than two minutes. He gets less than two minutes you're never told that he was a member of Ananda Marga, and you're not told that he was convicted and is in jail as this conspiracy, this conspiracy documentary is going 
to air. So they're quite kind of rigorous and pointed effacements of the truth. That they're 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 they're, they're deceptive, um, and um, the um, conspiracy theories that are now collected into that documentary um, are various. Well, for example, ASIO, the Australian uh, Security and Intelligence Organisation, planted the bomb um, intending to uh, discover it at the last moment, create a security panic, and as a result of that, um, sort of bolster up its own importance and and hopefully uh, increase its, its funding. Or um, ASIO or other organisations decided to hold a training exercise using live explosives while a dozen foreign dignitaries were st- <laughs> Yeah, that's right. You laugh. Uh, stay, were staying in a hotel um, uh, ne- next, to the, next to their bomb. Um, and in both cases, idiotically, somehow failed to extract the, the the live bomb with the live detonator next to it from the bin before it was collected by council workers and uh, and thrown into a uh, a garbage truck. Now, well, maybe they had to clock off. It was like five o'clock, right? We're going leave the bomb well, there. We're a, done for a, the day. Exactly, they're a public service unit, and then they presumably <laughs> have quite uh, quite strict work work practices. I mean, look, the um the thing to be said about these conspiracy theories is that there hasn't been a single shred of evidence to support any of them. There's been rumour, there's been innuendo, and there's been the kind of, you know, Matt, conspiracy theorising often works like this. Take take the example of the Hilton. Um, uh, the bomb was in the bin for seven hours. Uh, the bin was supposed to be emptied during those seven hours. We don't know why the bin was not emptied earlier um, because of this ASIO bomb the Hilton. In other words, you take a small unknown and you build upon that a vast um, theory or claim that has, has, has absolutely no connection to it. The fact that there will always be small unknowns about any event does not mean that uh, there, is, there, there is a conspiracy or that, in fact, the official story about that event does not happen in this case to be the true story of that event, which is precisely what has uh, been shown eventually to be the case here because Evan um, confessed, uh, was convicted, went to jail, uh, and continues, as I say, to uh, to take uh, full responsibility full responsibility for his role in this event. I'm quite interested in in Evan and the emotional state he is and the forces at work on him internally. I, with this, I mean, I, I read a letter that you have in the book from from Evan to his parents after the ABC documentary, and he. he I find it quite moving, really. He says, at this stage, it seems to have become an accepted fact that I confessed to a crime I didn't commit. Um, this, of course, being in the interests of being able to sustain a sensational conspiracy theory, and not only is it dependent on ignoring the fact that I remain in prison solely on the strength of my confession, 
but I am forced to the realization that this sort of specious nonsense depends on my acquiescence, my silence. I mean, did you get a strong sense from him of, of how weird or frustrated or bizarre it would be in his position to be sitting in prison for something you've confessed to and have the national broadcaster playing these nudge, nudge, wink, wink, look, it was everybody else documentaries? In, indeed, I... I did very strongly get that, Matt. It was a horrendous position to be in because you've done something absolutely terrible. For a decade, you've been unable to live with it. Um, finally, you've done the only thing that can possibly lead you towards uh, rehabilitation, restitution, and uh, uh, an ability to take your place in the community. And now others are trying to take that away from you. And what, what are they taking away from you? They're taking your story. They're taking mm. your story away from you. I mean, that's why I'm happy this book is out there because um, the, the, the last thing that was taken away from Evan was his, his own story and now it's been given back. Um, and, I mean, one vivid way that he's expressed that to me, Matt, is... I became my own jailer. Um, he was now the sole source of his own incarceration because, according to the world, uh, he was some kind of fantasist or, or maybe a lunatic who, uh, for reasons, again, unknown, had reverse-engineered himself into a massacre in order to emerge as the, 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 the key protagonist of it. Again, nobody's ever even attempted an explanation of, of why he would have done that. And can I just you know, also say in connection to that, Matt, that letter that you quoted, that expresses the, yeah, the, 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 the unique position he was in, the pain and frustration that he was feeling. And let's state too that his confession and his rehabilitation have a strongly religious element in them too. Um, part of what this was about for him uh, was was making his peace with God or, or coming again into the presence of the Christian God. And none of that was affected by all of this noise that gathered around him while he was in jail. But it did lead him to what I think was a, a poor decision um, as a result of things like that documentary and all of the other conspiracy theories that were going around, he decided to petition the New South Wales government for an inquiry into his conviction. In order to do that, he had to mount a kind of half pretense that he believed he was innocent. Otherwise, he wasn't going to get the inquiry. Um, he sort of managed that uh, however, in the end, the government said, no, we, we won't give you an inquiry, but we'll give you an appeal. Now, that appeal was booted out of court in no time um, because uh, the uh, the court decided that nothing that had happened since Evans' conviction, including the acquittal of his alleged co-conspirator, conspirator, cast the slightest doubt on his own guilt. He welcomed the dismissal of his appeal, another kind of bizarre and unusual uh, position to, to, to have. 
um, and uh, and expressed the hope uh, that it would uh, finally put to rest any idea that he was not um, uh, being truthful in his confession uh, of his role in the Hilton bombing. Um, but, Why was but, there not more? Sorry, yep. However, the fact that that appeal had taken place, of course, was also a- another um, arrow in the in the you know. Uh, it was an, another weapon that he was he was handing to the conspiracy theorists because they were able to misconstrue that and say, "Ah, oh, see, Pedrick has now recanted. He never did recant." Well, if if at a meeting at the Hilton Hotel of international leaders in Sydney, a bomb goes off, kills people, we have the the confessed bomber, the attempted assassin, saying, "I did this, and I did not act alone. It was in." concert with other people was a group plan to, to you know assassinate the, the prime minister of india why wouldn't it be taken more seriously and having you know a truth commission style inquiry into just seeing what really went down yeah um absolutely and and evan has uh, always supported uh, a royal commission into the hilton bombing um and i think that even now uh some sort of inquiry would be highly beneficial while those uh, the some of the victims the families but also uh, evan and, and others uh, from that period are still alive there were petitions for for inquiries there were uh there were the beginnings of movements towards inquiries, but uh, the governments uh, never were able to bite the bullet. I think there was probably some concern that the um, such an inquiry would, of course, reveal uh, terrible gaps in the security uh, arrangements for the uh, the so-called Commonwealth Heads of Government regional meeting that uh, that was taking place uh, at the at the time. Um, and eventually the thing acquired so much cultural baggage that I, I think it was felt that, um, you know, no, no, no inquiry could carry all of that through, uh, and it would be better if the whole thing were just, uh, just put away. Okay. Um, looking at Evan as a, uh, well, now he'd be a, seen as a terrorist, um, I mean, this event, then I don't think it carried the same terrorism kind of um, baggage as now. I mean, it, it is a terrorist act. It, it kills people and so on. But but you know, that label, if that had been applied to him then, he would have got more time, right, than 10 or 11 years. Um, indeed. Does he see himself as a former terrorist? And um, um, I don't think he would disagree that the Hilton bombing was an act of terror. And the, yep. the, um, the actions that Ananda Marga was undertaking internationally in the mid-1970s were intended to terrorise uh, the Indian leadership into releasing Sarkar from jail. Um, indeed, as you say, terrorism was largely unknown in Australia and Evan may well have perceived uh, a, a much uh, more stringent sentence if the uh, if the events had taken place later. 
let me just say on that, though, that um, another thing that wasn't well understood in Australia at that time uh, was uh, fringe religious movements, brainwashing and indoctrination of young adult males to terrorist ends. So there was endless scepticism uh, in court, and some of this also fueled the conspiracy theories, endless scepticism that someone like Evan, a highly intelligent young man uh, with no criminal record, uh, a very normal middle-class upbringing in Perth, Evan's father was a, a Methodist minister, um, who was proceeding in a particular, entirely normal way through his, his early adulthood, could, within a space of a few months, be turned into a fanatical, brainwashed acolyte of a foreign guru to the extent of being able to be groomed into committing murder. Now, Matt, none of that raises any scepticism today. We've seen no. it, we've seen it repeatedly, um, and uh, particularly, including here in Sydney, um, only uh, four years ago, in in terms of um, radical Isl- Islamist uh, terror cells, uh, being able to uh, spot, recruit, and groom a particular kind of young adult male and very quickly to be able to um, uh, reshape their identity to something unrecognisable. So um, in all of those ways, um, the, the, the trial was sort of very rapidly, or the, the culture in which the trial took place was, was rapidly overtaken. And yes, all of that may well have shifted the, the way that, that it that it in fact unfolded. It's fascinating how it's a sort of precursor to the jihadist movements that we know, um, but it's it's a it's a precursor, yeah, on the on Evans' side, but yeah, not on the court side, not on the media side or anything. It's they they don't see what they're looking at, you know. They they're not seeing the radicalization process and. And, and what not taking place. And, you know, Al-Qaeda, Islamic State and other groups have plenty of, you know, tertiary educated members. And Indeed. Um, the um, the November, um, the, the 9-11, uh, the uh, September 11 um, hijackers and, and killers, uh, several of them were, of course, highly educated in European universities. Um, yes, uh, that's right. Uh, and studies of cults, including harmless cults, have meanwhile shown that uh, they too seek their adherence uh, largely among the well-educated um, uh, European and Anglo-American middle class. And Evan also fit that profile uh, very neatly. Um, a young man, a bit lost, a bit aimless, dropped out of uni, disaffected with his parents' uh, religious tradition, but but also a spiritual seeker looking for something else. And, uh, you know, instead of stumbling across something harmless like uh, transcendental meditation or, um, you know, the student Christian movement uh, or moral rearmament or <laughs> Judaism or, in fact, mainstream Islam, in fact, uh, wandered into the, uh, 
waiting arms of a cult. Um, and uh, that, that, that's, that's a phenomenon uh, that's, that's much better understood today. And of course, we're talking about the great startup era for cults, the 1970s. This is, this is the era of, of the Moonies and, and uh, you know, Branch Davidian and, you know, the, 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 terrible, uh, the terrible deaths in the jungle. Um, mm. uh, with Jones and and the Bader-Meinhof and all of that. Yeah, and, and uh, 1970s, the Manson trial as well. Yes, the Manson trial as well. Which... And another group that saw themselves as ruling the world after, you know, a sort of dialectic process, but race war in that case. It's interesting, isn't it? There, were, there was something in the water um, in, in, the, in that age. Um, there was something happening. Um, I mean, I, I tried to throw a, a few suggestions out there on this in, in the book. I've, I've, I've come to no resolution on it. I'm also not an expert on it. But clearly, as the Vietnam War came to an end, um, all of the energy that uh, young people around the world had invested into that um, was looking for other targets. Um, and in a small number of cases... Uh, the energy found uh, something like a cult, and in an even smaller number of cases, like the one we're talking about, uh, it happened upon a cult that was uh, becoming uh, dangerous and deadly. I say several times in the book, Matt, um, you know, one of my reflections on all of this is none of it had to happen, none of it was preordained, none of it was necessary, of course. A lot of it is just accident, um, it's an accident that Evan stumbles into that meditation evening in, in Hobart, where he was living in the second half of 1977, uh, just at a time when he's looking for something bigger, and that something bigger, Ananda Marga, is looking for someone like him, and uh, Ananda Marga is becoming increasingly kind of crazily dangerous as, as uh, Sarkar continues to rot in jail. And then, guess what? I mean, the most bizarre coincidence of all, the Prime Minister of India comes to Sydney. Months later, within months, yeah. Within months. So, it's... And did, Sarkar got out of jail, right? Did, did, did the government give in or something? In B, I, saw, I read in there it's, it's Bihar State, which seems to be the uh, um, poor, very poor area and also the home of um, – a number of like Hindu sects that, that have adherence in Western countries. Indeed. Did, did the government buckle to the campaign? Yes, it did, um, but not not openly. Um, Sarkar was uh, conducting a series of, of appeals uh, through the 1970s, um, and uh, then within six months of the Hilton bombing, uh, an appeal was successful. Now, Desai had hinted repeatedly that if Anandamaga would lay down its campaign of terror, uh, there was the possibility of a political solution to Sarkar's situation. No doubt it's a confluence of legal and political arrangements in India that eventually led to Sarkar uh, being able to be released in the middle of uh, uh, 19. 78 and um, uh, he actually died while the Sydney Hilton trials were proceeding in 89 and 1990 
89 and uh, uh, yeah, 89 and 90. Right. So the campaign of violence worked, perhaps? To some extent. Uh, but uh, at the surface level, um, it, it was, in fact, a successful appeal. Right. Okay. And Evan, um, so he's, he's had his time with the Anandas, which lasted beyond, right, for some years beyond the bombing. He's got his jail time, and then he becomes a priest. Um, his jail time is quite fascinating in... in in your book, where he's in with um, the most notorious corrupt cop in the country, Roger Rogerson. Indeed. Um, and, you know, some senior figures in there. Why was he in with that lot? Because it's a protective unit, right? But he wasn't, he didn't need protection in jail, did he? Uh, well, he did uh, to the extent that he had um, testified originally um, against uh, someone else. Ah, and, right. Uh, that had earned. Oh, that's the witness protection part. Okay. Yeah, but that was in Sydney. Um, when he was uh, with Rogerson and Andrew Kalasich, um, uh, well known, uh, a man convicted of a notorious murder in Sydney that Evan became friendly with at, at Bowral, it was no longer in Sydney. It was a, a, a medium security jail in Bowral where um, most of the inmates. Uh, were under some form of protection. Evan by then was not. Uh, but um, yes, the, there were a number of uh, corrupt and crooked cops in jail with him who uh, were under uh, under special protection and not in the general jail community. I, I should We should just patch in there, Matt, that following the uh, Hilton bombing, Evan eventually left in Andamaga, married... Uh, became the father of twin sons, and as he increasingly reintegrated into the the normal social world, was also increasingly unable to bear the guilt of what he'd done. And as that that's a very painful story there, where he yeah he's he's got he's got his kids, he's he's growing out of the Nandamarga, and then this urge to confess becomes overwhelming, and he's, he has. He has kids, right, by that stage? Yes, and it was the inability to be the father he wanted to be because he never really felt that he was being himself with his sons, just as he never really felt that he was being himself in the quite respectable public service career that he was developing by then. It was the in inauthenticity of his position, the inner lie that he was harbouring, that eventually uh, ate away at him to such an extent that he had to unburden himself of it. And not just, of course, the inauthenticity with his sons, with his wife, with his colleagues, but with God, because also during those years, he'd begun the movement back towards uh, a Christian tradition. Um, and yes, uh, while he was in jail, he uh, he did, uh, as you say, come across some, some of the most notorious jailbirds in New South Wales. And I think probably in the course of that was was already starting to become the the person who would eventually find a religious vocation and eventually find uh, the role that he has today within a community, uh, supporting others and and, and helping them. Um, I would think that uh, he would be uh, a marvellous priest if you were in jail, um, but um, to 
this point, uh, that that hasn't been among his duties. He's he's the parish priest um, in a in a community in back in Perth. Uh, he returned to Perth uh, after his release from jail uh, to be with his family, who'd never who'd never uh, deserted him. Um, and uh, yeah, he's a he's a he's a parish a parish minister. How old are his kids now? They're twins, aren't they? Twin sons. He has. Tw- he, he's a grandfather. Um, his, his sons were born in 1980, so uh, they're now uh, middle-aged men, and uh, he's got uh, he's got uh, a number of grandchildren, and uh, he's a he's a doting grandpa. Does he have a uh, prisoner vibe? Like, um, I don't know if you, in your report you come across <laughs> prisoners too much, but does he have that kind of contained, quiet, cautious kind of? To an extent, someone who's done time. Yeah, yeah, I think. I, 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 of course, only have known Evan as a post time in jail. He, he is a he's, he's a quiet sort of person, uh, reserved and and uh, reflective. I think that he's not a fearful person. He's not a scared person. He's not at all a nervous person. I, I, I think that his experiences have made him. Uh, reflective, um, and I think he's and will always be sad. Um, he's it's a terrifically sad story. It's it's sad principally because uh, three men, uh, Bill Favell, Alec Carter, and Paul Burmistrew, uh, were killed in the prime of their lives. Um, needlessly, senselessly and stupidly. And it's also a sad story because a good young man called Evan Pedrick had his identity taken away from him and in that condition did a terrible, terrible thing uh, for which there can never be full reparation. Um, you, you, you can't mend the holes in the lives of the families that you've destroyed, but you can do your darned best. Um, and to me, the centre of the book is not some sort of forensic study of a terrorist incident. It's not conspiracy theories. It's not cults. It's not an Andamago. All those things are there. The centre of the book is a story of um, uh, guilt, uh, remorse, uh, and, 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 and the attempt to repair the terrible damage that one has done by taking responsibility for it, uh, of rehabilitation and and of rebirth. But having said all of that, Evan fully understands that at the heart of it all is this tremendous sadness on account of what his actions caused. And um, I just um, hope uh, that reading this uh, can bring some closure, maybe even some comfort to the survivors and to the families of the dead. Because, of course, they're the real victims of the conspiracy theorists. They're the ones whose, um, um, whose feelings uh, are, are most uh, sort of, uh, you know, betrayed by all of the nonsense that's gone on around this. They deserve... They deserve to know what happened to their loved ones. And, um, you know, I just pray that this book can help that. Well, they're, yeah, they're just being used, aren't they, at the moment? Like the, 
the victims are just tools in in propaganda and politics and you know i i think that when conspiracy theories come in on whether it's the kennedy assassination whether it's 9-11 whether it's this i mean they mock the dead yeah yeah the dead aren't real to them at all just lastly on this um it from what you're saying there it, it makes one ponder capital punishment um like if the, if there'd been capital punishment, what was it taken out in the sixties in Australia, right? Um, if if Evan had been hanged, or if he'd been in you know various other countries and states of the US and so on, and had been like, executed at some stage, uh, it would be quite the quite a different ending to the story, right? Like <laughs> absolutely, but especially for him. Um, yeah, but you know, it, it does. It does raise those questions, but in particular, it raises those questions because, you know, Evan was a, a, a you know, a, a kind and and good person until the second half of nineteen seventy seven. He's been a kind and good person since the end of nineteen seventy nine and and sort of middle of nineteen eighty. His identity for for three of his sixty five years was completely uh, reconfigured and during that period he was a different person and as that different person did something that the person before and since can hardly recognise, far less, you know, justify or condone. However, you know, Evan insists that he was not insane and is fully morally culpable for what he did. That is true. And yet it does raise tricky questions for the criminal justice system, not just in terms of um, capital punishment, but more broadly, if, you know, you can be someone else for a time, who are we punishing? You know, who's in jail? And, you know, disastrously, who have we executed? If it really is possible for your identity to be taken from you and then for you to reclaim it. These, these are, you know, very broad and very philosophical questions about, about human nature and criminal justice that I can't, I can't claim to, to resolve. Well, the military sets out to remake people, right? Indeed, they, indeed. You know, put them in a state of mind uh, where they're not hesitant to do what they've ordered to do. And... All kinds of institutions set out to remake people. Uh, Matt, mm. the, the institution where you and I met more than 20 years ago was, was trying to uh, remake you um, into a, you know, a different kind of member of society by, by providing you with a education into, um, you know, the, uh, the Western literary tradition. So, you know, it's, it's a kind of, you know, it's a slippery scale, isn't it? Between mm. all the different forms of consciousness remake, uh, but a cult you know, it's different to, to, for example, a religion, the kind of religion that Evan's involved with now. It's different to a mainstream religion in that it seeks complete control over the initiate's uh, activities 24-7, and it also seeks, to a very large extent, to isolate that initiate with fellow believers rather than the broader society that's that's around them. So a cult is a very special and specific form of identity, uh, you know, uh, renovation. Um, 
that's uh, that's different, you know, to the army uh, on one extreme or to something like a, a university at, at, a, at a far different extreme. And um, what uh, what are you doing next, then, Imre? So, are you working on any new writing projects, or no? I feel um, blissfully freed of uh, of all of that, Matt. Throughout the my adult life, I've always had a writing project of some kind on the go, including all those years as a journalist. Um, since finishing this book, I've 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 actually felt um, <laughs> that I've unburdened myself of something, and 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 uh, there's there's nothing currently pressing and i can tell you you know i'm 65 exactly the same age as evan that of course helped us in our in our getting to know each other as well and it helped me in understanding his life and his period or periods uh, but no i uh, i'm open to suggestions and i'm i'm also open to doing absolutely nothing right has, has evan have you just discussed with evan uh the current round of terrorists uh, jihadists and uh, what is the interesting person to get involved in some sort of? Yes, um, I, I, I think that, um, for example, uh, the, the the police who deal with um, um, the phenomenon of young adult males being recruited and groomed by jihadists would have a lot to learn by uh, speaking to Evan because it's very rare, not only for someone to come out of the other side of that. Uh, but also to have a highly articulated and uh, reflective understanding of what they went through. I would think that the book by itself uh, would have something to say to those who, you know, not, not just study that kind of thing you know, as an academic field, but actually have to have to deal with it in some, some, some sort of law enforcement sense. And I, I would think that um, Evan would, would make an interesting subject for, for those who either study or have a role in, um, you know, the um, the policing of terrorism. But no, so far he hasn't been. I think I think occasionally students of, of that um, area have reached out to him and, and he has had occasional contact and discussion with them. I know that he's perfectly open to it. Uh, one last thought I had on this was um, last night I was thinking about Northrop Fry that, you know, you had a strong academic scholarly interest in um and where fry talks about um satire taking an interest in anything and everything that people do mm. versus the philosopher who teaches a certain way and method of living stressing some things despising others and so on and being very selectful with how people should live passing moral judgment all the time mm. and being dogmatic versus the satirist and i guess the, the cults kind of started to remind me of that where this is rigid like lines been put down. Mm. I mean, because you're in the book, you talk about the Nandamarga having like very been very sexually controlling and diet and all kinds of things, and but and also the lack of humour within cults. Whereas, you know, the satire being sort of a exuberant, get dirty, look at everything, try mm. everything, be alive. Yeah, absolutely. You know, no, yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. Um, a cult like an Nandamarga seeks to regulate every last aspect of its in, uh, members' lives, including very much their, their, their sexuality, um, but also, you know, they're eating, they're sleeping, they're yawning, they're going to the toilet, there are rules about all of it. And as you say, um, that kind of satirical uh, uh, messiness of human life, uh, it, it's an attempt to not just control that, but, but really to, to efface it. 
um, uncertainty, irony, humor, as you say, um, all the, all of that is attempted to be brought under control. And, you know, um, you mentioned uh, the sort of ascetic philosophical outlook. It's also, to some extent, uh, the romantic outlook. And something like an Andamago, which uh, promises its initiates a contact uh, with a universal mind, uh, is very, to some extent, reminiscent of the, the romantic interest in the sublime. Uh, like like the Eastern spiritual tradition, the romantic tradition of the supply, sublime does involve some kind of merging of the individual, um, a... Um, a dissolution of of the self into into a larger organic body. And that is very risky and very dangerous uh, because, uh, you know, in undertaking that, um, you can offload uh, all of the baggage that's ultimately what makes you an individual. Well, I was reading recently about Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath, how... um, some of their friends say they explicitly modelled themselves for a time on Heathcliff and Cathy from Wuthering Heights, and things things went badly off the rails when they just saw themselves, like you're saying, merging into the, and, and um, taking on these these archetypes, archetypes of, rather of than the, selves, yeah. yeah, rather than selves. So it's and it's not satirical, you know. It, it it's utterly serious and determined and. Dogmatic, cults are dangerous. Cult, cults are certainly not the place you want to go for, you know, stand-up humour for slapstick. <laughs> um, no. But um, then again, my book, as it traces Evan's career in Anandamaga, does also try to give it a fair shake uh, and to show there were legitimate and sophisticated spiritual understandings here, and there was joy. Uh, there was um a strong sense of connection with others. Uh, there was the strong sex, uh, sense of connection with something larger. Uh, there was dancing. There was singing. There was feasting. Uh, there were good things here. And and at, at various points, uh, a sect like an Andamaga merges with other wholesome, valid, and nourishing religious traditions. Um, these things all they, they they occur in a continuum. They're not separated off from each other. Uh, but you know, at certain under certain strict conditions and at certain times, in certain kinds of um, new or radical religious movements, things can go very, very badly wrong. We've seen it uh, before, we've seen it since, and we see it in the story of the Hilton bombing. Well, the Rajneeshis come to mind too, and the, in Oregon with the mass poisoning. Absolutely, and, and, and when I watched, yeah. Needless to say, watching that uh, widely discussed Netflix documentary, I was consistently struck by echoes of what I'd been studying uh, myself in terms of the new religious movements of the 70s and Anandamaga. Absolutely fascinating. Well, thank you very much, Imre, for your time on the New Books Network. And just to remind everybody, the book's title is The Hilton Bombing, Evan Pedrick and the Anandamaga, written by... Imre Salazinski and published by Melbourne University Press. So do yourself a favour, readers. Anyway, thank you very much, Imre. Thanks uh, for having me, Matt. I've, I've really enjoyed talking to you.